As my high school teacher, Miss Judy Coleman, used to say, we must adjust to changing times and still hold to unchanging principles. Hello and welcome to Unchanging Principles. I am your host, Josh Carter, and I'm President Carter's grandson. I want to start out this episode by thanking you for listening to my first podcast and hitting play on the second. I've been blown away from the feedback you guys have given me. I'm, I'm incredibly thankful to you for listening and for reaching out to me. I received a lot of questions and one seemingly recurring theme is, is there going to be a discussion forum where I could answer questions that you may have? And the short answer to that is yes, absolutely. Please email me at josh at unchangingprinciples.com and I'll get back to you and I'll find a way to weave in all the good questions and some of the bad ones into the show. All right, just kidding. There are no bad questions. I have a seven-year-old and a two-year-old, so unless you ask for a different meal as soon as I put down your plate, there are no bad questions. Now, I've been working on this podcast for a while now. I've, I've had ideas about the show, and in its embryonic stage at least, uh, since about February. But I started getting serious about it a couple months ago. I started researching hosting sites and microphones and all that kind of stuff, and I started putting together my ideas and recording some takes and have my wife and some friends and family listen to them and give me feedback. And, and literally from the moment I hit publish on my first episode, uh, my wife and I have been stuck in the hospital with our two-year-old. It just sounds like a very 2020 thing, doesn't it? Um, well, you know, the important thing is that while we're stuck here, uh, my two-year-old is improving. Every day is better than the last. And I have a lot of time during my sleepless nights here in the hospital to outline what I'd like to talk to you about. And honestly, it's keeping me sane. So my in-laws have Charlie, my seven-year-old, and and they're learning how to navigate a second grader's classroom through Zoom, and they're not even complaining about it. Last night, they told me that they were worried that they weren't doing enough, but it's literally the only thing making this extended hospital stay possible. So thank you. So that to say that my entire social media ground game has fallen apart, and the timelines I gave myself are already slipping right. I'm here to talk to you. I would love to hear from you. So please, especially until I fix my website, my Instagram, uh, if you have a question or an experience that you'd like to share, please email me at josh at unchanging principles and I'll get back to you. But on with the show. And today I'd like to talk to you about one of my favorite people in our nation's history, Benjamin Franklin. He was the only one of our founding fathers to sign all four main documents founding the United States. His signature is on the Declaration of Independence, the Treaty of Alliance with France, the Treaty of Paris, and the United States Constitution, of course. He was also our first postmaster. He was the president of Pennsylvania, back when Pennsylvania was a colony and had a president instead of a governor. He founded Philadelphia's first fire department and the University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, as a sidekick, he invented the lightning rod and bifocals and all kind of stuff. He's just fascinating. And any number of the things that he did for our country are a good enough reason to immortalize him on our $100 bill. He's also famous for his opening line describing our government moments after the Constitution was ratified. The United States is founded as a republic if you can keep it. Now, there were no audio recordings of this at the time, unfortunately. It would be really awesome to hear a speech from Benjamin Franklin, but 
We know about this quote from the notes of James McHenry. James McHenry was a Maryland delegate for the Constitutional Convention. He was one of five. Fort McHenry in Baltimore is named after him. Anyway, his notes read, A lady asked Dr. Franklin, Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? A republic, replied the doctor. If you can keep it. And why not keep it, she replied. And then Franklin said, Because the people, on tasting the dish, are always disposed to eat more of it that does them good. And then, after George Washington was inaugurated as our first president, Benjamin Franklin said, The man put at the helm will be a good one. Nobody knows what sort may come afterwards. The executive will always be increasing here as elsewhere, till it ends in a monarchy. So, there was a lot of worry at our country's founding that our republic would be difficult to maintain. I mean, it's easy to see why our founding fathers were concerned about a monarchy. The Declaration of Independence was extremely high-risk treason against King George III. Still, we won our revolution, which gained us the power to finally, for the first time, break away from monarchical rule. The founders did not want to go back to a monarchy, but they also knew that when you give somebody power, that person might not want to give it back. So, the framers formed our country as a democratic republic. That means we're both a democracy and we are a republic. And the founding document that created our system of government is the Constitution of the United States. And that document delegates the power and constrains how our government can operate. Therefore, in total, the government of the United States is a constitutional democratic republic. A republic is a government where the power is given to that government by the people being governed. This is a departure from being lorded over by lords or kings or emperors. And in fact, our constitution forbids titles of nobility in our country, so there is no pre-filtered ruling class. Any member of our society can rise to any level of leadership. But it is our democracy that keeps it that way. Democracy provides us, or we the people, the vehicle to choose our leaders and to transfer power peacefully from one leader to another. George Washington set a precedent when he stepped down and let his power go after just two terms. There was no constitutional requirement that he had to end at two terms. He just thought that was long enough. The presidency was not limited to two terms until the 22nd Amendment was ratified in 1951, after FDR broke tradition and was elected president four times. When George Washington left office in 1787, it was unusual for the leader of a nation to peacefully give up power, but he did. Washington proved that our democracy could work. He could have just held on to his power. George Washington was a popular and competent leader. But for our new democratic republic to actually work, Washington knew that he would have to lead by example. So he gave up the office. And the second presidency was won by John Adams, and that was George Washington's vice president. But the Adams presidency was viciously criticized by Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson ran against him and beat him to become a third president. So the first transition of power from Washington to John Adams was a relatively easy handoff, president to vice president. But the second, with Adams relinquishing power to a rival Thomas Jefferson, That proved our republic could be kept 
if our leaders were loyal to democracy. One of my grandfather's life goals was to increase and improve democracy around the planet. Through his organization, the Carter Center, we have democracy programs in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And he started out strengthening democracy in Latin America with Gerald Ford before I was born. So I've literally talked to him about the ins and outs of democracy for my entire life. Democracy is the best tool ever conceived against tyrannical power. But the problem with democracies, and the thing that my grandfather would get directly involved in sometimes, you know, especially with the ruling leaders in a emerging democracy after the opposition won an election, is that they require those in power to respect it. When I think about how the pieces of our government fit together, I like to think about it this way. Remember, our nation is a constitutional, democratic republic. Republics are governments that are given power by the people. That just means that the government did not get its power from a king or an emperor or a religious leader. It got the power from the people. Now, republics generally form at the beginning of a revolution, like we did. And it's impossible to state exactly where our revolutionary tendency started. But a very clear turning point was the 1765 Stamp Act. Now, with the Stamp Act, the British Parliament required that almost all paper used in the colonies came from paper mills in London carrying an embossed tax stamp on that paper. And the tax itself was extremely unpopular, as you can imagine. But the thing that irritated the colonialists the most is that they had no representation in that British Parliament that imposed that tax. And, and that's where that rallying cry, no taxation without representation, came from. Colonists saw this as straight tyranny. And just 10 years later, militias started battling British loyalists in Massachusetts in April of 1775. And peace talks with King George failed in June. So later in June, 1775, our Congress turned around and granted General George Washington the power to form a colonial army and to go seize Boston from the British. The American Revolutionary War lasted almost eight and a half years. But a year into our Revolutionary War, on July 2nd, 1776, Congress resolved that the United States was free and independent from Great Britain. And then, two days later, on July 4th, 1776, the event that we all still celebrate every 4th of July, Congress approved the most famous document in American history, our Declaration of Independence. That was drawn up by Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, along with Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston. They called this the Committee of Five. And that document explained to everybody why we proclaimed ourselves independent from King George forever. Our Declaration of Independence is not subtle. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then Congress tapped this young Irish typesetter named John Dunlap to create about 200 copies of the document to send across a new country. One of those copies was delivered to the commander-in-chief of the colonial army, George Washington. 
and he read the Declaration of Independence to his troops five days later, on July 9th, 1776. This is what we are fighting for. And then we sent a copy to King George. As we fought our revolution, we, as a self-proclaimed new nation, with the power we gave ourselves, created a secret committee of correspondence to go and secretly gain an alliance with France. And, and Benjamin Franklin kept going over to the French foreign minister and negotiating a treaty with France because we needed their help. And, and we knew that the French hated the British as much as we did. And also, Benjamin Franklin was trying to secure a loan from the French to fund a revolution. And on February 6th, 1778, Benjamin Franklin signed our Treaty of Alliance with King Louis XVI. And then the French started fighting the British alongside us. The Treaty of Alliance was immediately controversial. There was no end date in the treaty. So in the United States, many Federalists could not stand the idea of being eternally tied to the French. Alexander Hamilton especially. Hamilton did not see how our brand new United States would ever be able to go and help the French over in Europe as the treaty required. And then he thought the treaty would end up ruining American and British trade once a revolution was won. But the British were furious. Four days after the Treaty of Alliance was signed, with France both recognizing the United States as an independent nation and then forming an alliance with us, Britain declared war on France. And then Spain, as France's ally, declared war on Britain, so Britain declared war on Spain. And then Britain declared war on the Netherlands after they seized a Dutch commercial ship loaded with contraband headed to France. So those two documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Treaty of Alliance, they could have easily ended up in a museum of colonial treason in Great Britain. But with the help and distraction of France's military, we won our independence forever on September 3rd. 1793. Now, on September 3rd, Henry Lawrence, John Jay, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin got King George to sign the Treaty of Paris, declaring as Article 1, Britain acknowledges the United States to be free, sovereign, and independent states, and that the British crown and all heirs and successors relinquish claims to the government, property, and territorial rights of the same, and every part thereof. Not so. So, with the power that we fought so hard to win, where our American Revolution launched war here and involved Britain and France and Spain and the Dutch Republic, our Republic leaders decided that the people will lead their own government. Our revolutionaries won our power. And then they gave the power to the citizens. To us. The other option, of course, would be for the revolutionaries to just keep their own power. After all, they just rip power from Great Britain, so why give it away? Now, this happens frequently when forming communist countries. When people take over a government through a communist revolution, they generally form a people's republic. Power is initially given by the people, the revolutionaries, to the communist party. But the communist party never gives the power back. Like the People's Republic of China like the Republic of Cuba. In those countries, the Communist Party decides the rules to govern the government, and then they don't let anybody into the party that they don't select. Similarly, republics can fall to dictatorships. 
And one of the most intractable dictatorships on the planet today is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or, you know, as we call it, North Korea. At the end of World War II, in 1945, power over the Korean Peninsula was taken from Japan. And for the first time since 1910, the Korean people were no longer under Japanese control. They were under their own control. Brand new independent nation states generally require the stability of an established government to sustain themselves long enough to establish self-rule. Countries transitioning from one form of government to another, or from one rule to another, are called transitional countries. And, and they're the most fragile, unpredictable, high-risk countries out there because power's up for grabs. So transitional governments need to be supported. And often this role is filled by national governments like the United States or international organizations like the United Nations. And sometimes activities like monitoring an election and drafting a constitution are overseen by non-governmental organizations like the Carter Center. So taking those roles in the Korean Peninsula in 1945 were the USSR and the United States. First, the occupying Japanese forces had to be removed and the Koreans needed a functioning port to come home. And the Soviet Union occupied the peninsula north of the 38th parallel, and we, the United States, occupied the south. Anyway, in order to establish a new unified Korean nation, the United States and the Soviet Union needed to agree on how best to unify the two occupied areas to form this new independent Republic of Korea. The Americans in Korea, the, the United States Armed Forces, they produced these awesome videos of what they were doing, and they would send them back to the United States to play on newsreels and movie houses to tell Americans what they're doing over there. And, and they're fantastic. This, they're called Armed Forces Screen Reports. And I've got audio from the one from Korea. And I've left in the intro because you have to hear it. The Korean people were wildly enthusiastic. For years, they had fought against their Japanese oppressors. A symbol of freedom flying on their soil was inspiring. However, the development toward a free, united Korea has been hindered by an artificial boundary at the 38th parallel. The establishment of this parallel was a purely military decision reached in consultation between American and Soviet military leaders at the time when it was necessary to decide who was to accept the surrender of the Japanese in different parts of Korea. The boundary separated Russian and American troops and was supposedly only temporary. While the Japanese military was being disarmed and deported, Koreans were being returned to their native land from overseas. During the war, two million Koreans had been taken to Japan and forced to aid the military program. As rapidly as possible, ships brought them home to begin their lives once more. Korean men had been drafted into the Japanese army while their families had been used as slave labor.
The United States and the Soviet Union could not agree on how to reunite the peninsula. But the Korean people, with the help of the United Nations, had already elected to hold a peninsula-wide election in 1948, deciding to leave the future of the country up to the citizens. Our major objective today in Korea is the establishment of a sound government. Since the United States and Russia in joint commission have thus far been unable to reach agreement on the uniting of the northern and southern zones, the United States has made clear an intention to carry out its pledges to Korea in the southern zone. Until a stable government can be set up, the United States is seeing through a program of training in self-government similar to that formerly administered in the Philippine Islands. Although there is a strong desire for independence, there is a lack of trained personnel for government jobs. In the past, most administrative positions had been held by the Japanese. Patriotic Koreans were never permitted to occupy any important post. There was international concern that the Koreans would be unable to hold a free and fair election, especially while the Soviet forces backed the charismatic People's Worker Party leader Kim Il-sung. And they were right to be concerned. On May 10th, 1948, elections were planned across the peninsula for the people to elect delegates for the Korean Constitutional Assembly, or their parliament. Now, this is an assembly that was similar to our own Constitutional Convention. The idea is that the new country would receive delegates from all over the peninsula to write the new constitution and to form their own government, and then agree on how to populate that government. But the Soviets backed Kim Il-sung, and they blocked all election activity in their occupied territories, making the election effective only in the American-controlled South. Voter turnout in the South was an astounding 95.5%, and it was not peaceful. The election was sabotaged and terrorized, and about 600 Koreans died to the lead-up of the election. But even so, the South Koreans left 100 spots open in their parliament for the Koreans in the North to eventually fill with their delegates. But it was becoming increasingly clear that the Soviet-occupied North had no intention of forming a cohesive government with the South. Today, in the Southern Zone, all people have the right to assemble peaceably and express their viewpoints. The people of South Korea trade and move about freely within their zone. But unfortunately, the 38th parallel, originally a military expedient, has become a barrier preventing normal activities within the entire country. For a while, there was little communication between the two zones. The South Korean assembly lost patience with the North for unification. So they formed their own government and proclaimed authority over the entire peninsula as originally planned. The Assembly in the South voted on a new constitution, and the Republic of Korea was born on August 15, 1948. Now, despite Korean turnout north of 95%, Kim Il-sung argued to his people that the election was an obvious attempt by the United States to separate the South from the North. So 10 days after the Republic of Korea was born, on August 25, 1948, North Koreans announced their own election for their Supreme People's Assembly, and they held their own election, run by the Soviets, 
where Koreans were presented options from just one political front backed by Kim Il-sung. And of course, the single-party vote provided the win for the only possible party. And on September 9th, 1948, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was born. North Korea. A republic given power by the people. Once. At the 38th parallel, American border troops are receiving large numbers of refugees that have fled from the northern zone where a government has been set up along Soviet lines. Refugees arriving in American territory are hungry and weak after long journeys on foot. Perhaps nowhere on the planet is there a starker example of a republic where the power is owned by the people through democracy and a republic that fell to a dictatorship than the contrast between North and South Korea. Democracy ensures that the people with the power are beholden to the people. The only way to have a democracy is to ensure that the government is accountable to the people. And the only way to strengthen a democracy is to ensure that the people's voice is equitably heard and respected. Democracy is the key ingredient that makes our republic accountable to the people. Rejecting a republic where the government is only accountable to itself. Every American president before Donald Trump has championed democracy because democracy is what makes America America. My grandfather was certainly loyal to our democracy. He was beaten by Ronald Reagan in the 1980 election and he handed power of the country over to him. And when my grandparents left Washington, D.C. in 1981, my grandmother thought that the best part of her life had ended. There were a couple points in her life where she had this thought. The first time was in 1953. My great-grandfather died while my grandfather was in the Navy. And after nine years in the Navy, exploring the world outside of Plains, Georgia, Naval Academy graduate, Lieutenant Jimmy Carter, was honorably discharged, where he ended his career working at the Naval Reactor Branch under Admiral Hyman Rickover to return home to run the family farm. Rosalind was unhappy. She would not talk to my grandfather the entire car ride down from Washington, D.C. D.C. to Plains is about a 12-hour drive without stops and kids, and they had three little ones in the car. So if she needed to stop, she would tell my Uncle Jack, who was about six at the time, to tell his father that he needed to pull over. It was a long car ride. And in fact, this was the rockiest time in my grandparents' marriage. My grandfather said that this time in their marriage, Rosen avoided talking to him as much as possible. My grandmother was upset because she thought that her whirlwind tour of the world as the spouse of a naval officer was over. She was returning from the excitement and action of Washington, D.C. to her hometown of Plains, Georgia, where everybody knows everybody, population about 600 people, where life was much slower, much more simple, and relatively isolating. And the best part of her life was over. So, fast forward 28 years. And again, she's leaving Washington, D.C. to her hometown of Plains, Georgia. Ending her whirlwind tour of the world as the First Lady of the United States to her hometown of Plains, Georgia. Where everybody knows everybody. Population about 600 people. Where life was much slower, much more simple, and relatively isolating. The best part of her life was now over. But... They got back to Plains, and one night, my grandfather was lying in bed, trying to sleep, mulling over what he wanted to do with his life post-presidency. 
And he sprung out of bed and he turned on the light and he told my grandmother that they should build a conflict resolution retreat similar to Camp David. So on October 29th, 1981, the Carter Center was co-founded by Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. And the Carter Center has been the best part of my grandmother's life. Now, all modern presidents have a presidential library. A presidential library houses the papers and records and artifacts and the history of a presidency. They're part of the United States National Archive System, and, and I think they're national treasures. Jimmy Carter built his in Atlanta, and he decided to attach the Carter Center as an active center that he would run to promote peace and to strengthen democracy around the world. So, over the next few years since its founding, the plans for the library were solidifying, and the Carter Center took shape. The grand opening of the Carter Center and Presidential Library was on my grandfather's birthday. October 1st, 1986. And incidentally, as I'm recording this, today is my grandfather's birthday. Happy birthday, Papa. I was there, and I do not remember it well. I was two, and I'm pretty sure that was the only time I met Ronald Reagan. But even before the new complex was open, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford co-hosted the Carter Center's inaugural Middies consultation, and that grew into the Carter Center's Middies programs. A quick side story about Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was the 38th president of the United States. And, of course, my grandfather ran against him for the presidency in 1976 and beat him and won. So you wouldn't necessarily think that they would be the best of friends, but, but they were. Every single time that Ford was in the Washington area, my grandfather would invite him to the White House, and they would talk about what was going on and the issues of the day and what programs my grandfather was trying to get through Congress. And if Ford agreed, which he often did, he would go over to Congress as a Republican former president and advocate for Jimmy Carter's policies within the Republican Party. And in fact, my grandfather delivered his eulogy when he passed away. They were really close. And my grandfather's favorite story about their relationship is, is they used to laugh over this great comic from The New Yorker of a little kid talking to his guidance counselor. And he says, when I grow up, I want to be a former president. And I still think it's funny to picture Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter laughing over a New Yorker comic about the presidency or post-presidency. And now here they are, two former presidents working for peace in the Middle East. Former presidents retain the clout of the office of president, but they don't have any of the official responsibilities. So they can meet with anybody in an unofficial capacity to achieve official change. In the world of diplomacy, this is called soft power, as opposed to hard power, which is done through the official actions of nation-states, like imposing sanctions or bombing people. A month after the opening ceremony, the Council of Freely Elected Heads of Government was created at the Carter Center, with Jimmy Carter as the chair and George Price from Belize as the vice chair, and it included 27 former and current heads of state in North, Central, and South America, including Gerald Ford they kicked off a program called Reinforcing Democracy in the Americas to promote democracy, free and fair elections, and governments accountable to the people. See, in 1986, strongmen were starting to dominate Latin America, and the Carter Center's first democracy program was aimed at promoting democracy in our own hemisphere. And the work of the Carter Center, enabled by my grandfather's presidency, is my grandparents' life work. 
The work of the Carter Center is the life that I know most intimately about my grandparents because, well, I was born, <laughs> been here, um, and I have witnessed them shaping their programs and achieving their results through my entire life. The organizational foundation of the Carter Center is built on three main pillars. That's waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. The democracy program is built on top of the pillar of waging peace. Waging peace. Let's think about what's packaged in those two words. Peace part is easily explained. It's an absence of armed conflict. It's an absence of tyranny. It's people living in their community and in their country without oppression from anybody. And I think it's helpful to look at waging peace from how that first word is normally used. The opposite of peace is war. Waging war. Okay, well, what's involved in a war? There's a lot of work. There's a lot of planning and there's execution. There's figuring out a battle plan and assessing the situation and reassessing once actions are taken. The people carrying out the war need supplies and people and equipment and reinforcements. And the outcomes are not guaranteed, so the risks are enormous. Waging war requires a nation-level sustained commitment to continue until the goals are met. Now, for waging peace, it takes planning. It takes work and execution. It takes dedication by all actors involved. It takes risk-taking because the outcomes are not guaranteed. Waging peace requires the same level of effort, the same nation-level sustained commitment to continue until the goals are met. But in war, the goal is domination. And by waging peace, the goal is peace. Waging peace, like waging war, it takes tools and it takes equipment. And after hundreds of years of history of governments governing their own people, and by looking at current different government systems over the planet and how they govern their people, one of the tools that we have found that is most effective in waging internal peace, that's peace within a country, is allowing people to choose how and by whom they are governed. And the reason this works is because a country ruled by the consent of the majority of its citizens has no reason to oppress its own people. And the people have fewer reasons to despise their own government because if the government is accountable to the people, bad actors will be removed and people that we think will do a better job are given a shot. The tool to do that is called democracy. Today, the Carter Center has democracy programs around the world. The Carter Center has monitored 110 elections in 39 nations in Africa, Latin America, and Asia since 1989. The Carter Center has monitored elections in places like Tunisia and Guyana, Nepal, Liberia, Kenya, and the Philippines. And in fact, my wife went with the Carter Center to Sudan to monitor the South Sudanese referendum for their independence from Sudan. So as the world expert on monitoring elections, the Carter Center has worked with the UN on developing the Declaration of Principles for International Observation. That's literally the handbook for election monitoring. And, and since its founding, the Carter Center has always maintained that it will never observe an election in the United States. For one, due to our electoral makeup and our lack of a nationwide election standard, the United States doesn't actually qualify. You know, but importantly, the work of the Carter Center is nonpartisan. The Carter Center's work has been aided by George Bush and George W. Bush, and President Ronald Reagan was at a ribbon-cutting ceremony. And of course, the Carter Center has also worked well with the Clinton and Obama administrations as well. But 
we are aware that the Carter Center was founded by a Democratic president, and neutrality is paramount to election observation. But today, due to the sustained attacks on our democracy from the Donald Trump administration, the Carter Center is now exploring direct engagement on U.S. election issues for the first time. So the man who runs our democracy program, his name is Dr. David Carroll, and he studies democracies around the world. And he has warned that there is a significant potential for an important change in the quality of our democracy. And our democracy is under severe threat. And President Barack Obama has warned that Donald Trump will tear down our democracy in order to win. And the reason that Dr. David Carroll and Barack Obama are so concerned about this is because Donald Trump is doing this in the open. The moment that a leader tries to strip power from the people, the republic is in danger of falling. If a leader then proclaims himself king, then the republic falls to a monarchy. When the power is seized by an emperor, the republic falls to an empire. When the power of a country falls to a supreme leader, then the republic falls to a dictatorship. And when the country falls to an organized ruling party, the republic falls to a regime. In other words, these are the cases where the republic was not kept. When a republic falls, the republic rarely changes its name, but the power will no longer be from the people. Look no further than the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, that the name of a country is no guarantee of the government structure. I mean, there's marketing involved. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea just sounds a lot better than the brutal dictatorship of Korea. When those in power of a government act in a way that limits the will of the people, democracy is weakened. And the two main methods of ripping power away from the people is through attacking the election system and by subverting the checks against the corruption of power. And this is why Donald Trump is so dangerous. Every single president from George Washington to Barack Obama was dedicated to our democracy. Democrat and Republican. Dedicated to the accountability to the people. Because that's the definition of American. When my grandfather lost to Ronald Reagan, he controlled the entire executive branch of the government. But he accepted the results, and he left office, because he was first, above all, dedicated to our democracy. Now, Al Gore, despite being vice president of the United States in one of the most bitterly divided elections up to its point, of course, was at first committed to our system of government, and he gave up power to George W. Bush. And of course, the Republican Party controlled the government when Barack Obama won, and power was peacefully transferred again. But Donald Trump started his attack on our democracy on his first campaign trail. When Donald Trump was running for the election, he proclaimed that he would only accept the results of the election if he won. I would like to promise and pledge to all of my voters and supporters and to all of the people of the United States that I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. And then he did win. Not the popular vote, but to the Electoral College. The people wanted Hillary Clinton to be president. She received nearly three million more votes than Donald Trump did. However, through our Electoral College, Donald Trump received 304 Electoral College votes to Hillary Clinton's 227. And through our Constitution, 
only these votes count. And Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And as citizens of the United States, we have enough respect for the Constitution to accept it. And though Donald Trump pledged to accept the results of the election if he won, he, he has yet to do so. Instead, in order to defend his popular vote loss, he has fabricated three million illegal votes that he has not yet explained. On November 27th, 2016, Trump tweeted this. In addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote, if you discount the millions of people who voted illegally. So even as early as president-elect, Trump was continuing his full-scale assault on our democracy. And then on January 23rd, 2017, this is a huge change now because now he's speaking as the president of the United States. He told the congressional leaders that were with him in the White House that millions of unauthorized immigrants had robbed him from a popular vote majority. And then he pinned that number around 3 to 5 million votes. Donald Trump has not offered any evidence for this claim, but his press secretary at the time, Sean Spicer, said that the president had based his number on studies he had seen. If that's the case, the president does believe that. He has stated that before. I think he stated his concerns of voter fraud and, and people voting illegally during the campaign. And he continues to maintain that belief based on studies and evidence that people have presented to him. But exactly what evidence? I, I, well, I, Speaker I'll, Ryan today said there's no evidence. The National Association of Secretaries of State say that they don't agree with the president's assessment. What evidence do you have? I, 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 as I said, I think the president has believed that for a while based on studies and information he has. Now, not a single one of these studies have ever been presented by Donald Trump or his White House. And nobody in the White House has ever explained how any organization could run a voting fraud campaign at this magnitude across hundreds of electoral jurisdictions. Now, the reason the White House has not presented any evidence is because the claims are not true. Claims of voter fraud in 2016 were investigated by the Trump administration. And out of 129 million votes cast in the 2016 election, there was only one case of voter fraud found. Terry Lynn wrote from Iowa, pled guilty to voting for Donald Trump twice. So, we have researched the claims of voter fraud in 2016. And the evidence is negative. Voter fraud was not an issue in the 2016 election. As the leader of our nation, as the president of the United States, there is no reason for him not to know this. And if he were loyal to our democracy, he would not say this. But when the president claims that there was voter fraud, his supporters lose faith in our electoral system. And that is a direct attack on our democracy. And Donald Trump has attacked our system of voting by mail. By July 4th of this year, our nation's birthday, Trump had said over 60 falsehoods about our supposed fraudulent nature of voting by mail. Now, the evidence here is also negative. Five states in the United States, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, and Utah, vote completely by mail. And in Arizona, more than 80% of their ballots cast in 2016 were by mail. And with as close and hotly contested as the 2016 election was, and as closely scrutinized as the election was, there was not a single case of voter fraud found in any of these states. And I think it's worth noting that Utah and Arizona both voted for Trump. Again, as the President of the United States, if he were loyal to our democracy and to our system of government, to the special ingredient that makes our republic America. He would not act this way. 
It is a specific attack on our democracy to attack our election system. And unfortunately, furthering this attack, the President of the United States and the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, has even used my grandfather and James Baker's nonpartisan commission on the federal election reform that they completed in 2005 to support their claim that mail-in voting is problematic. Now, James Baker was Ronald Reagan's chief of staff and later his secretary of treasury. And then he was George H.W. Bush's secretary of state. So in James Baker and Jimmy Carter's bipartisan election commission, it is true that their findings noted that because voting takes place outside of the regulated environment of local polling locations, voting by mail creates increased logistical challenges. And if done carelessly, a potential for voter fraud would exist if the ballots were not safeguarded. But it is disingenuous to conclude that Jimmy Carter and James Baker's commission argued against mail-in voting. What they advocated for was safeguards around mail-in voting. For example, not allowing political parties to handle mail-in ballots, using official ballot drop boxes, or otherwise only allowing ballots to be handled by the United States Postal Service, instead of being collected by political parties or anybody else. And they further found that where these safeguards were in place, for example, in Oregon, who has been voting by mail since 1998, there has not been any evidence of voter fraud at all. The commission's main recommendations on voting by mail were to increase access and research to voting by mail and to ensure that the same safeguards that states now have on their ballots are on the ballots. My grandfather has endorsed mail-in voting and in fact has voted by mail these past five years. And Donald Trump himself has voted by mail in the primary and he will be voting by mail again in the general election. Washington, D.C. and every state in the country except for Texas has a way for voters to track their own mail-in ballot. Texas limits tracking to military personnel and overseas ballots only. And in all but four states, a mail-in ballot is available to everybody who wants one due to the pandemic. And, and as a side note, if you do live in one of those four states without access, that's Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina, and if you don't like the fact that you don't have access to a mail-in ballot, the elected official that manages elections in a state is the Secretary of State. So, Look at your Secretary of State candidates and see if you have a candidate that would like to expand access to mail-in ballots. Now, in my state of Georgia, I track the status of my ballot through Georgia's My Voter page. And in North Carolina, you can go to North Carolina's Ballot Tracks website to track your vote and ensure that your vote is counted. Voting for our leaders is a national pride in America. So Donald Trump should certainly encourage his supporters to vote for him. But it is a direct attack on our democracy to instruct his supporters to vote twice, as he did in North Carolina. 600,000 people could vote by absentee in this state. Yeah, are, you, are you confident in that system? Well, they'll go out and they'll vote and they're going to have to go and check their vote by going to the poll and voting that way because uh, if it, if it uh, tabulates, then they won't be able to do that. So let them send it in and let them go vote. And if their system's as good as they say it is, then obviously they won't be able to vote. His words carry the authority of the President of the United States. If Donald Trump were committed to our democracy, he would tell his supporters in North Carolina to vote in person or to vote by mail and track their ballot on ballot tracks. The President of the United States absolutely has this information available to him, as to all Americans. But instead, 
he told his supporters to vote twice, damaging his supporters' faith in our election system, advocating for confusion and frustration and delays on election day. And it's a felony for anybody who obliges. Donald Trump is waging an alarming, direct war against our democracy, making him a danger to the republic. And the Constitution is not going to protect this nation from falling to a dictatorship if the leaders sworn to defend it do not respect it. So when Donald Trump says stuff like he wants to be president for 12 years, it's an unmistakable threat to the Constitution from the man sworn to defend it. Now, in less than a year and a half, the first term will be over. Think of that. I announced today that we got the Soccer World Cup. That's a big thing. Who else is going to do it? But it's We've got a problem. It's in 2026. Gianni Infante, who was a great guy, and we announced it in front of the press. And 2026, and I said, well, wait a minute. Under the normal rules, I'll be out in 2024. So we may have to go for an extra term, okay? Oh, they're going crazy. They're going crazy. Tomorrow, you're going to see headlines. Trump wants an extra term. I told you. I told you. He wants an extra term. He wants an extra term, ladies and gentlemen. We told you. We told you. He's a dictator. We told you. No. No. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Now, Donald Trump is certainly a showman, and he made it very clear there that he was telling a joke. And I may not agree with the joke, but, but still, a joke isn't an attack. Vote early and vote often is an old joke that way predates Donald Trump. But the problem is, he didn't stop there. We are going to win four more years. And then after that, we'll go for another four years because, you know what, they spied on my campaign. We should get a redo of four years. The claim that somebody spied on his campaign is, is not true. The Obama administration did not spy on Donald Trump. No, we were spying on Sergei Kislyak, a Russian diplomat. And we caught audio of General Michael Flynn talking to Kislyak in December of 2016. We were spying on Kislyak because Russia was attacking our election system. But the FBI did not reveal that they were looking at any of this stuff until January of 2017. This was all revealed after the 2016 election, so there's no possible way it could have had an effect on the election. And we should all absolutely require that our government would aggressively investigate and counter foreign interference in our election system. But still, none of this even read in its worst possible light, invalidates the 22nd Amendment of the Constitution. And according to Donald Trump's national security advisor, Ambassador John Bolton, Donald Trump knows this because Trump told the Chinese premier, Xi Jinping, that he was looking to repeal the constitutional two-term limit. Now, if you want to really drive him crazy, you say 12 more years. Because 
We caught them doing some really bad things in 2016. Let's see what happens. We caught them doing some really bad things. We have to be very careful because they're trying it again with this whole 80 million mail-in ballots that they're working on, uh, sending them out to people that didn't ask for them. They didn't ask. They just get them. And it's not fair, and it's not right, and it's not going to be possible to tabulate, in my opinion. It's just my opinion. We have to be very, very careful. And you have to watch. Every one of you, you have to watch. Because bad things happened last time with the spying on our campaign, and that goes to Biden, and that goes to Obama. And we have to be very, very careful. We have to be very, very careful. And this time, they're trying to do it with the whole post office scam. They'll blame it on the post office. You could see them setting it up. Ballots are the way that we keep our democracy. Nine states and Washington, D.C. will send ballots to every one of their registered voters, but obviously they need to be returned in order to count. California, D.C., and Vermont are moving to exclusive mail-in ballots, but the original five I mentioned earlier, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, and Utah, have been operating this way for many, many elections now. And then in nine other states, every registered voter has received an application for a mail-in ballot. You can't vote with it. You have to return it to receive a ballot. And that's New Mexico, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, Maryland, Delaware, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Making it easier for American citizens to vote is extremely important for strengthening our democracy. Funding the United States Post Office is a critical piece of expanding voting by mail. We want the United States Post Office as a key partner in our election system because it is owned and operated by the United States. So having our chief executive call these systems inherently fraudulent seeks no other purpose than to delegitimize our election and to nullify our democracy. At every chance, we must require that our leaders and all who want to become leaders are faithful to our election system, to its results, and to the integrity of our ballots. To be very clear, ballots strengthen our democracy. Ballots are the key to our election system, and the election system is the tool that we use to make our democracy function. Our election system is literally the vehicle that transports people from being regular American citizens into officers of the United States. So it must be safeguarded as the national treasure that it is. We must hold on to our unchanging principles of democracy, a government empowered by the people. Our democracy is under direct attack from the President of the United States. And if you support our democracy, if you support our Constitution, if you support the key ingredient that makes America, America, you cannot support Donald Trump because Donald Trump is openly campaigning on ending our system of government forever. A republic, if you can keep it. If Donald Trump is successful in seizing power from the people by attacking our election, democracy will fall and our republic will be lost. Thank you for listening to Unchanging Principles. Please email me at josh at unchangingprinciples.com and visit my website at unchangingprinciples.com. I have an idea of what I want to talk to you about, but I would really love to hear from you. What interests you? What questions would you like me to answer? I might not have the answer, but I'll try. 
When we all get out of this hospital, I'll post some stuff on Instagram at Unchanging Principles, but I actually found a poem from my grandfather here that I'll put up soon. I am now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and I was just accepted on Pandora. And this is my second episode, so if you still like it, please rate it and like it wherever you downloaded this show and tell your friends. To learn more about the foundation that my grandparents founded after the presidency, please visit the Carter Center at cartercenter.org. The fight over access to which Americans are allowed to choose our own leaders is called voting rights. And I'm going to talk about that next. There is a peaceful solution called the Peace Revolution. Now let's take back America. There's a war and we're in it. I know we can win it. So let's take back America. There was a dream, so believe it. And get ready to receive it. Now let's take